welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Today, my guest is Jigar Shah, the Director of the Loans Program Office of the U.S. Department of Energy, where he has $40 billion of authority within manufacturing, innovative project design, and tribal energy. Um, yep. The question I had for you was purely the economics of it, because alkaline storage, best case scenario, 100% capacity of the alkaline electrolyzers, $10 per megawatt hour electricity, um, or $100 per megawatt hour electricity, $10 per kilowatt. You know, ten dollars per megawatt hour. Best case scenario, it's double the cost per unit of energy of natural gas. It's one point time nine times. And that's the absolute best case per Lazard stuff. So the question is, you know, is that a strong value proposition? If the best case is double, and, and you you must have done the modeling on this. So I was interested in the yeah. I think I mean, I, this goes back to what we were talking about before on the system basis, right? When California had issues over the last two years on system stability, the utility that had no issues on system stability was LAWP because it had an 1800 megawatt coal plant on this line that was providing it power, right? And so now the question becomes, right? What's the value of system stability? Mm -hmm. And you can decide what you want to decide, right? But this particular location already has a transmission line that's built from this location all the way into a population center. It has a natural salt cavern that sits underneath it, so it's already ready to go. And it can go from 220 megawatts of, of electrolyzers to almost 2,000 megawatts of electrolyzers if the economics work to do that, right? And then on the other side, what are you comparing it to, right? There's seven pumped hydro facilities in the region that were designed in the 1970s that still haven't been constructed. So this one's under construction. You let me know which one you've got under construction on the pumped hydro side of those seven facilities. Well, and that's the interesting question, right? To compare and contrast, you know, what's the value proposition of that versus pumped hydro? And why did that one, you know, because it's a big, it's a big spend. And I'm, I'm just curious about where the existing design pumped hydros fell by the wayside. You know, what is the barriers to entry for that? Because it's, a, it, you know, there's, a, it's, pumped hydro is cheaper per unit of electricity delivered than the uh, salt hydro. There's no pumped hydrogen. hydro facility in Delta, Utah. That's where it fell by the wayside. Okay. Right. I mean, this is what I'm saying is that like, I feel like as an engineer, I understand the questions you're asking, but I think the questions you're asking are not the relevant questions, right? Like if I had a choice to design a electricity grid on SimCity, I might make different choices. But I don't have the ability to go into a computer modeling software and just say, let me put one of these units here and let me put one of these units here and let me just take the highway and build an HVDC line across it. And then I've now solved all the problems. I mean, I have to go in to every single situation and figure out what are the what does the community think? How does the existing infrastructure get leveraged for this decision? You know, mm -hmm. who is a decision maker on the load serving entity that's actually going to pay for the cost of the resiliency? And if those all don't line up for that particular project, well, then the project didn't move forward, even though the math on a, on a spreadsheet showed that this project was half the cost of the other project. That's a theoretical half because I can't build it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is an interesting question. I mean, we're going to end up with 
some overpriced components, some things that are delivering, but to your point, systemically, they're going to be valuable. And, you know, I'm all about leveraging existing infrastructure where it exists. You know, it's a, it's a challenging discussion. You know, it um, is. Yeah, but the politics just... really matters, right? This is why SMRs really matter, because all of these coal plants and natural gas plants that are being retired, right? There's two options here, right? Because these plants have 200 union workers that work in that plant that actually operate the, the coal plant. They also yep. spend, they also invest a couple of million dollars a year into the local economy. Many of these towns have a population that's less than 5,000 people. So their entire economy is based on the property taxes that are paid by that plant. If you replace it with a, a solar plant with a battery storage facility, none of those people will keep their jobs because there's no jobs required there and mm -hmm. outside of construction. And there won't be any property taxes being paid because solar projects and battery storage projects pay very little in property taxes and usually want a property tax abatement for 10 years. And so you could imagine there being a lot of interest on those mm -hmm. uh, folks' part to put in an SMR. Separately, the grid was built for a 24 by seven facility to be built in that location. So the grid already is built around that location, right? So now the question becomes, why are Americans incapable of building a manufactured product like a small modular reactor? We have to ask ourselves these tough questions and figure out how we use the resources of the Department of Energy to make us capable of achieving what many people believe to be impossible, even though the politics of this is that most people want those coal plants replaced with SMRs. Yeah, it's an interesting question in many ways because one of the assessments I've done is, um, which I haven't seen out elsewhere. So. These numbers are, I went through congressional budget lines. I looked at a whole bunch of material. And I said, what is the cost of security and who pays it for nuclear facilities? And SMRs are nuclear facilities. Sure. They have, they have it's not a safety concern. You know, I, I'm, you know, nuclear, existing modern nuclear plants at any scale have passive safety features. The history of nuclear is one of safety. There's very few deaths and stuff associated with that. That's not my concern. Yeah. But it is a security concern. And we, you know, it is, there's prescribed technology concerns, there's um, radioactive material concerns for IEDs, you know, uh, for domestic or foreign terrorists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And so, you know, and right now we have, uh, I count seven overlapping layers of security from the IAEA's security arm, which the United States provides majority of funding for, for global supplies of nuclear fuel down to the federal institutions, um, including your own, where you have a nuclear, you spend a lot of money on nuclear. And we some do. of that, yeah, spent a lot of that. I understand someone, you know, was surprised by that in the past few years. <laughs> However, we won't go there. The, um, and then you get down to the state and the municipal, and then you've got three, at least three layers of circles for each physical location. And that's much more than coal. You know, there's mm. a whole... Yes and no. I mean, most coal plants have 1,800 acres of uh, buffer land around them. They have had a tremendous amount of security for a long time around the coal plants. And all of the costs of upgrading those to the standards of nuclear 
are not the part that we are all concerned about in terms okay. of the cost structure of nuclear, right? I mean, we might be concerned around our track record of building nuclear power plants. And, but, but when you think about the physical footprint of a small modular nuclear reactor versus a coal plant, uh, they're night and day, right? When you think about the amount of waste that is exported from a coal plant in the form of coal fly ash, et cetera, every day, you know, the numbers are one one thousandth for for a nuclear plant, right? Or yep. much, much lower, right? And so, so, you know, storing nuclear waste on site is something that can be done for decades without running out of room. We're um, already doing that pretty much everywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, and- so, and then I think when you move to a small modular reactor, one of the things that I think people are not paying close attention to is that when you look at some of the designs that we have, they have extraordinarily high quality heat so you're seeing a ton of industrial companies looking to co-locate small modular reactors on their property because they want the quality of the heat coming off those small modular reactors in addition to the electricity. So now you have another revenue stream that's coming into these reactors and can be quite cost-effective. So I think what I would say to you is that, look, I think the, the, the thought process around nuclear has shifted mightily in opinion polls and whatnot to the point where the mm-hmm. governor of California is looking at whether Diablo Canyon can be saved. But more importantly, I think that we just all have to be honest with each other around what a 2035 decarbonization looks like, not mm-hmm. only for our country, but also for countries like South Africa or India or many parts of Asia, where you know right now they are going back to coal because of the rising costs of liquefied natural gas, right? And I think when you think about what uh, solutions they have to meeting these needs, there's no bigger fan of solar and wind power than me, right? I mean, I've made a lot of money in the solar space you for have. many years, right? So I'm not anti-solar, but for the love of God, I think we have to think through diversification, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have a 100% solar powered grid. It's just not like something that anyone- You wouldn't do it, no. Would do, right? And so then the question becomes, what would you do on the other side? And I love enhanced geothermal. I think we should invest heavily in that. I love low impact hydro. We should invest heavily in that. I love a lot of those technologies, but even like biomass with CCS, for instance, like Bex technologies. But the notion that you're going to run 50% of a grid off of any of those three technologies is- very few and far between, right? You might do it in Costa Rica, but the notion you're going to do that for China and India, unlikely. I, I'm not sure I fully agree. I mean, I, 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 but let's let's discuss the European example again, you know, just to compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take Germany, a highly industrialized country, still has lots of onshore manufacturing. As you, as you discussed, I, I agree with you that shutting down the nuclear instead of their coal was the wrong choice, but They'd also reduced their total GHG emissions across their entire economy by 35 percent. You know, including that decision. You know, since 1990. So while their uh, GDP and population grew, so there's you know signifiers there. Secondly, they're over 40 percent of renewables between hydro, wind, and solar, and they have the most. No, they have one not of the most- really. The vast majority of that 40 percent is actually from biomass. Interesting. You think so? so I so have to look you, at those numbers if again. If you then. start doing the math, it's because they've done an extraordinary job of collecting waste and turning that into electricity. And the UK has done the same. 
I, my point is simply that, look, I'm a big fan of solar and wind, and I think you can add one to two, three, four hours of battery storage to all those sites fairly cost effectively just based on you know market forces. But getting up to 12 hours of battery storage, that's not so cost effective compared to baseload power plants, which is why they've paid a lot of money for biomass. Right. And so, and renewable natural gas and, you know, a lot of these other types of technologies. Again, I'm a huge fan of them. We invested heavily in renewable natural gas in my private sector. So, like, experience. So, I'm a big fan of these technologies. But 50% of the US grid and 50% of the German grid is a lot of kilowatt hours. Right. And to, to stably run a grid like these grids with a modern, you know, with modern conveniences, remember what we have to do is to convert all of our vehicles, right, to electric. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, maybe it's 91% of them, but pretty much all of them to electric. That will double the total amount of electricity sales in this country. Double, mm-hmm. right? I think people are not even fathoming that. They're saying, well, we're going to decarbonize our existing generation. Okay, but we also need to add another 1,700 terawatt hours worth of electricity sales to be able to like to do these other things. I just think that the scale of what we need to accomplish by 2035 to decarbonize the grid is something that people are not expressing enough humility over. Oh, I, I, I completely agree. The, the variance I'll put in is the, I, I love the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory uh, Sankey Diagrams of Energy. I'm sure you're very sure. familiar with them. You know, the, the point I make there is we don't have to replace all the primary energy. We have to replace the energy services. And there's That's a right. lot of energy services. If we electrify the energy services as much as possible, we have a lot smaller job to do. Electric cars are part of that job, but we still have to build a lot of, elect- uh, build a lot of electrical generation, is your point. It's still going to be a massively greater demand for, for electricity. Yeah. And I think when you think about, I mean, as someone who developed wind and solar farms for many years, right, mostly solar, we're not limited to 30 gigawatts a year because of interconnection, although interconnection is a big piece of it and we're working on that. Mm -hmm. We're also limited to 30 gigawatts a year because there's a lot of county governments to go through to get permissions to be able to build these things. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to integrate all of these technologies into the grid. And so we are adding 80% of all what we add to the grid every year is clean, right? And I'm yep. quite proud of that, not just as an individual, but as part of uh, the government today and as part of a broader industry. But the notion that that number is going to go to 100 gigawatts a year is really hard to see, even though everybody wants to. We have tons of money that we've raised to be able to do that. The institutional investors are not the bottleneck here. Right. But the physical nature of installing that much solar. Now, we might be able to do it on rooftops. Right. Australia is up to 40 uh, percent of its households being solar these days, and they're heading towards 50 percent. We, we certainly have mapped about three to four hundred gigawatts of rooftops available through Google Sunroof and the NREL rooftop data that we could do, which is wonderful. Right. But when you think about, you know, how we actually add that much power right? You're not going to get 1700 terawatt hours of new power from 400 gigawatts worth of rooftop solar, right? And so it's part of the solution, but diversity still matters. Yeah. And we, let's just take China as an example, different example. You know, obviously there's a really interesting consensus in Washington about China right now, which is 
problematic. I, I recommend everybody to read Kissinger's book on China to get a pr- different perspective than the prevailing one. But you know, China is obviously adding as much wind and solar as pretty much the rest of the world combined. It's building a lot more HVDC than most. It's building more vastly more pumped hydro than most. I'm sure it's building much more battery storage than most on its grid. Obviously, the you know uh, the high speed electrified rail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also diversified. It's building, it's got a big nuclear thing. Its its nuclear program is not doing nearly as well as its wind and solar, even adjusting for uh, connectivity problem, you know, connectivity challenges they face there. Um, And its nuclear fleet, to your point, 91.1% current capacity factor. So almost as good as the United States new fleet. Well, largely because of the technical assistance that the U.S. has provided to China. Yeah, over the decades, yep. And so, but they're also building more gas, more coal, which is, you know, pissing a lot of people off, but they need all of the above and they're balanced. They're trying to balance it. Right. And so that is that diversification that you're referring to, but they're also, you know, to compare and contrast United States, they have a different set of barriers. They don't have the significant degree of states rights and county rights that the United States has evolved, that devolution of authority to, you know, especially the authority to say no, that uh, many small bodies have in the United States that has to be overcome. You're talking about the politics. Um, and they have a different ability to deal with local NIMBYs than the United States does, I'd say. You know, so it's it's a different model is more the point, but they are investing in diversity. And that's your mantra of today. It's the diversity of investing as many things as possible. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think China is trying its best to deploy technology as fast as it can. The U.S. is also doing the same. I think the U.S. experience is generally one that is copied around the world. And so, you know, I think that when you think about the challenges that we face, they are the same challenges that you face in India, the the same challenges you face in South Africa or Brazil or lots of other countries around the world. And so I would say that the vast majority of countries around the world are looking to the U.S. for leadership over looking to, you know, a country that's more centrally planned. It's it's differences in there. So we've only got a few minutes left, you know, and I want to respect your you know, incredibly valuable time. And you know, I'll say it again. I do appreciate your spending this time with us. But let's just poke at one or two more things. You know, let, let's talk about HVDC. In your uh, May you know, update from the loans program office, transmission isn't huge. How, how much HVDC is actually there? Because you made the, the big announcement came out last year about support. Biden's original plan had a HVDC interconnect down to Latin America, down to South America. Yep. Then he kind of more adopted Sanders' plan for leveraging federal right of ways for HVDC, you know, a, a grid. And how much of that is actually in plan? How many of the applications, 77 applications, are actually for federal right of way HVDC interconnects? So I can't get into that level of detail, but what I'd say is that we've got, you know, over $5 billion worth of applications that have already come in for transmission. We're planning a lot more, right, with the states, with the New York and New Jersey announcements on offshore wind, DC meshes. I think everyone acknowledges that HVDC is, can handle a lot more gigawatts of offshore wind integration into the grids than radial lines can. And so I think that a lot of that's there, but I still think that we have fairly substantial arguments around how we do the cost allocation and, you know, like whether these costs are going to be rate-based by consumers or whether they're going to be, you know, subsidized by the federal government. 
And, you know, that's a difficult thing to, to answer. I, I'd say the sequencing also matters, right? You can imagine that if you were to reconductor a line and, you know, put in modern technology into that line, reconductoring some small portion of it without reconductoring the part that feeds it and the part that, you know, like evacuates it on the other side leads you with the same bottlenecks, right? So you actually right. have to plan to reconductor the entire circuit, right? And, yep. and those are difficult because you have to get that approval across many states, right? Yep. To be able to get that, that done. So I think HVDC is something, you know, from a technology standpoint, America has a lot of leadership in, and, uh, and we certainly have a lot of plans to build HVDC, particularly on the integration of our offshore wind. But when it comes to actually taking our existing grid and upgrading it to HVDC or putting an HVDC layer or on to, over top of it, there's a, there's a level of coordination. I mean, when you think about what PJM did just to layer in a 765 KV network, I mean, an AEP led most of that work over top of that, it was a very difficult challenge, right? So when you look at that as an analog, it's a very difficult problem and one that the federal government is not allowed to lead on, right? So no. we're allowed to educate people around what the potential opportunities are, and we're allowed to provide money for, you know, rebates and incentives and tax credits and those kinds of things. But we're not really allowed on a top-down basis to tell people what to do, even if we can model it and show people the benefits of, of doing these kinds of things. And so, you know, I do think that, that we have to work in partnership on these issues. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge you face. I'm glad you've got it. Last thing, you've got an audience that's 50% the United States, 50% the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, open-ended question. What thought would you leave or thoughts would you leave that audience before we close? Look, I think that we have learned a lot since I was reading about solar power in the 1980s and into the early 1990s around how we commercialize technology. Back then, people were not open-minded to commercializing new technologies. Today, they absolutely have looked at the experience of solar and wind and electric vehicles and battery storage and see potential, see wealth creation, in fact, coming from this commercialization. So I think every country around the world believes this to be the largest wealth creation opportunity of this century, right? And so the question really becomes, how do you align the technologists, of which we have many, and the venture capitalists who support them, right, with the education layer around infrastructure deployment, right? Because one of the challenges that we've had is that sometimes the valuations of these companies have gone faster than the implementation layer has been able to absorb these technologies. And therein lies the profit-making potential across the world. Excellent. My guest today has been Jigger Shaw. He uh, runs the United States Department of Energy's Loans Program Office. Jigger, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.